Welcome to Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm joined uh, by my co-host, Calvin Pollock. How you doing? And uh, today we are extremely honored to be joined by Dr. Asao B. Inouye, professor and the associate dean for academic affairs, equity, and inclusion in the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts at Arizona State University. His research focuses on anti-racist and social justice theory and practices in writing assessments. Among his many award-winning publications on this topic is the 2012 co-edited collection, Race and Writing Assessment, the 2015 book, Anti-Racist Writing Assessment Ecologies, and his most recent book, 2019's Labor-Based Grading Contracts, Building Equity and Inclusion in the Compassionate Writing Classroom. He was the chair of the 2019 Conference on College Composition and Communication, where he delivered the keynote address, How Do We Language So People Stop Killing Each Other? Or What Do We Do About White Language Supremacy? Asao, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Our pleasure, too. So we are doing a rejoinder episode today. That was the reason that we wanted to have you here with us on a topic that is, uh, shall we say, uh, right up your alley. I think there is no <laughs> really better way to put it than something that was kind of a, a, a pitch right across the plate for your expertise area. Wheelhouse. Pick your favorite metaphor. <laughs> yes. All yeah. right. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah, us too. So for those of our listeners who are not familiar in our rejoinder episodes, we typically take really bad takes from across the internet, the opinion sphere of reactionary uh, politics that are on topics such as language, politics, anything that's in our wheelhouse, and we will critique it. We usually want to provide a little bit of a more credible perspective on it, uh, something that is thoroughly researched, that is not just kind of a uh, off-the-cuff remark, but something that is uh, uh, rooted in our understanding of language and the world. So, I usually like to open up these rejoinder sessions uh, with a little bit of a framing question, and uh, today will be no different. So I would like to pitch this to the two of you, and you may feel free to respond to it however you like. You may challenge the premise of the question. You may answer to it point blank. You may make a joke on it. Whatever you feel is the most appropriate response to this question. The question that I'd like to ask both of you, is English grammar racist? <laughs> You want to you want to start, uh, Calvin? So you know yeah, better how yeah, to do yeah. this than I do, so I'm just the guest. <laughs> Sal, why don't you, Sal, why don't you take this one first? <laughs> English grammar is not racist. However, how it gets deployed in schools and society can very much be racist or white supremacist, and it's often deployed that way because it's a very good surrogate for racism, good old fashioned racism. Uh, and it's usually used in schools and places like that or job markets as a way to distinguish or to make decisions and judgments on people without reference to where they're from, who they are, where they live, and the people they work, they live and work around. So, and those usually are racial markers or racial uh, formations in in many cases. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. I would I would say, you know, to the extent that society is racist. <laughs> English grammar is racist. To, to the extent that English language speaking societies are racist, then English grammar is racist. But it's, you know, not all grammatical forms used in the English language are used in every instance in service of racism. I don't believe it's like as totalized as all that. But I think it's sort of just self-evidently true that like the language spoken in a racist society is going to bear you know, some traces of that, that racism that's operating at a larger level. Yeah, and all we have to do is look at where we get our grammar from. 
That's where, where we get the, the, the habits of language, English language, um, in a, either a broad sense or a grammatical sense. And who are those people? And who benefits by reproducing just that version? And then saying that that version is the best version or the only version or the clearest version or what or the proper version. I love, I love when people try out proper. It's proper English. <laughs> it's only proper in a particular group, right? It's not proper in every group. <laughs> so, right. uh, yeah. So I, th so I think, yeah, it really, I mean, if we, if folks want to talk about grammar as being racist or English grammar being racist, they really need to be much more specific about right. it yeah. um, and understand what we're really talking about here. No, I, I agree with that. And I, I really like what you said about the, the sort of like, like versions calling one version better than others. And I think to that end, the, the premise of the very question, which I have recontextualized, by the way, I'm not, I was not posing that in a, in a serious, serious uh, <laughs> register. We'll, we'll find that out in just a moment here. I think that even just the framing of the question at like, assuming that there is a single totalizing entity <laughs> that we can call English grammar in the singular right. is itself right. a racist concept. Like that we can maybe say is racist. Like the idea that there is only one, there is one true English grammar, um, <laughs> I think is more, more of a racist contention than, than even the question uh, itself. And it's not just racist, it's classist, it's, yes. it's gendered. Like it's, I mean, as soon as you assume one standard of grammar, you're excluding infinite varieties of people who don't know that standard or use a different standard that works perfectly well for them. Yeah. And, 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 I, and it, it also denies the rich textured ways in which people on a planet, on a planet like ours uses language and uses perhaps the same language or versions of the same language in very, very different ways to do similar things, different things. And I think that's really important. We miss so much. We, I mean, we, we miss a lot when we say, Let's only think about it about English grammar this one way, and every other way is deficient. It's it's substandard. It's not appropriate or or correct. It, it's just really uh, quite narrow and and unfortunate because it makes good people uh, who use language it makes them think that they're not good language users. And I think everyone's a good language user in their way in the ways that they are. I think that this is kind of the perfect the perfect framing conversation for the rest of the episode that we're going to have here, which is uh, we we have to admit right up front the response to a specific exigency we might say in the rhetorical situation model of this debate there was an exigency that that called forth different public responses that are asking this question now the is English grammar racist so Calvin could you tell us a little bit about the kind of exigency for our episode today yeah for sure so Rutgers University the Department of English put out I believe this was an email but a, a list of department actions in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And within that list of actions was a bullet point on incorporating critical grammar into our pedagogy. So I'll just read this bullet point and then we can talk about it. But the bullet point says, quote, this approach, so incorporating critical grammar into our pedagogy, this approach challenges the familiar dogma that writing instruction should limit emphasis on grammar slash sentence level issues so as to not put students from multilingual, non-standard academic English backgrounds at a disadvantage. Instead, it encourages students to develop a critical awareness of the variety of choices available to them with regard to micro-level issues in order to empower them and equip them to push against biases based on written accents." Unquote. So 
what I find fascinating, and we'll probably get into this as we as we look at the responses to this, I think a lot of the responses didn't really engage with the content of this, which is that it sounds to me like Rutgers is actually going to be doing more grammar instruction in their courses, in ter- not, not prescriptive dr- grammar instruction in terms of telling people like that grammar is wrong and this grammar is right, but actually educating students about the varieties of, quote, micro-level issues that may come up in different dialects or sociolects or different ways of speaking to basically give them flexibility in different situations. And so I see this as very much in keeping with methodologies that I use in my research, like discourse analysis, where you're looking at a micro-level at how people write and um, making them aware of the different effects and situational uses of different micro-level forms. Yeah, I think that in my view of what how the, re, the various reactions, particularly in the conservative media, on this this letter and, and this particular bullet point, which seems to be one of the biggest contentions, and probably because it seems most graspable for folks who don't who aren't in in the field, that is the field of education or the field of, of rhetoric and composition, who haven't really worked around these ideas. What does it mean to, to, to do critical pedagogy or critical grammar for that matter? That uh, And that those things are actually quite different, right? To teach writing and literacy and to teach grammar and critical grammar are very, very different things. So I think that that right there, it really re- shows, this shows how it requires a bit more. And this is an internal email, I believe, right? It's, me- it's meant to go to like inside to, to the school and to faculty and, and others in that university, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. They they did release it on their website. I, oh I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if that was post uh, post hoc or if it might have uh, been post hoc uh, after sure. the, after it got publicized in the college fix and they wanted to this kind of right wing right wing college watch website that that published it, it just in bits and pieces. I think they maybe wanted to introduce the full context to the publics just so that it's out there. But I'm right. not a hundred percent sure on that. I guess my point is that it, you know thinking about what this bullet point is actually saying they're going to do. It's not, I think what Calvin says is really right on point. It's they're not saying they're not going to teach grammar. They're saying they're, no, te- they're, fact, gonna, they're yeah. saying they're going to teach more, more of it. Yeah. yeah. And they're, but that they're actually going to teach probably the politics of it and what it means yes. to do this way or that way. But what I think what gets heard is this to contextualize within a, a statement about anti-racism in the school and in their practices and it gets heard as, oh, you're not going to teach proper grammar because the biases that the readers who who think that, I think they're reading through those biases, which are that they see their privilege, and they may not label it as such, their white privilege, or their the, the privileges that come from that whiteness in so-called proper English are going away. They'll, they would say, oh, they're not teaching their students grammar now they're all just going to be you know uh not good at 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 language but that's just not the case and if they really understood how grammar works you can't teach grammar there's lots of research to show you can't teach people how to write them using uh, by using doing grammar instruction it doesn't work that way grammar's most of it's already gotten by the time you get to school that is by the time you get to college it's already you just fine-tune stuff so this is really about critical awareness and about understanding the, the rhetorical and, and grammatical choices that one makes 
when one does communication in the world. Yeah, I, I, that's that's a really good provocative way of putting it because I think it, it acknowledges that idea that grammar is political in a way and language is political. And that's something that, you know, is probably, I mean, it's something that we kind of take as a baseline assumption on this show, right? Like that's kind of why we examine the things that we do in the way that we do because we acknowledge language is political. When we use language, we are doing a sort of world making and we are putting forth a vision of the way that, you know, of, you know, in our choices of the language that we use, it is a choice, I, I guess, need is what needs to be acknowledged here. And in the midst of all this, I was reminded of basically the same question or the same comment that I get whenever I tell somebody that I'm getting a PhD in rhetoric and <laughs> the first they ask what rhetoric is and then I tell them oh, it's in the English department and then they say oh English oh I better watch my grammar around you <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 that I think I mean I think that's part of what got the hackles up of so many people here was that that idea that English departments exist to teach proper grammar. Like that is the only thing that English departments <laughs> presumably do. And so to say that they're doing anything else, and especially if it's in solidarity with something like Black Lives Matter, for conservative readers, that might feel like red meat. So I think that we're going to have a, a really good time, hopefully, discussing these these really bad takes. So the uh, the first one that I wanted to start us out with here, now that we know the the actual context in which in which that language was used, let's Let's see how it how it reverberated outward. What kind of waves did it make in the uh, the conservative op-ed sphere? So the first article that I, or I guess the only article that I want to read for you here is an article from the Patriot Post, the so-called uh, America's News Digest. Um, it is Patriot- where I go for all of my news when I want to digest <laughs> all of my news. All of my American news, good American yeah. news digest. Just to kind of contextualize this, under the heading, the Patriot Post, they have the statement uh, "Pro Deo et Libertate," which is uh, which is Latin, I believe, for God and liberty. So again, the you know it, this is not at all fashy, not 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 at all it, signaling it, what, to. But what? But the cream of the, I mean, the the icing on the cake here is their symbol. It almost looks like Captain yes. America's shield. It's, it, it, <laughs> you're right. It's, it's, it's so amazing. It, it, oh, you're because right. Because every Patriot post ought to have Captain America's shield defending that's right. it. <laughs> well, that, that's what that's how these op-ed writers think of themselves, I'm of sure. Of course, they defenders are, of they, America. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, they are They are the vanguard standing against yeah. the social justice hordes outside yes. the gates. Uh, so this was, this is uh, a post by Boston Globe columnist Jeff Jacoby, and it is uh, published on July 29th, 2020, so just uh, not, not very long ago. And the title of this post is, Is English Grammar Racist? So we're finally well, we already get a, we already determined that we already yeah. determined it, but pro- we're we're going to get a straight answer on on what this. I'm is. I'm sure uh, Jeff will have a better answer than yeah. a sour eye. I mean, he's done more research than all of us on this. That's he's right. done the work. That's he's right. Done he's done the work. Yeah. Okay. He's, yeah. he's done. He's done the work. It's true. Yeah, the work of uh, closing your eyes and not paying attention to anybody other than people who post on Patriot Post. So first of all, I have to say, whenever you have an article that starts out with a question, uh, shout out to Citations Needed podcast. Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson always start with the, uh, or they have they have a really good. I don't know if they were the ones who invented it, but the sort of knowledge that if a if an article starts with a question or if the article title is a question. The answer to that question is almost always no. Um, so, uh, so I think that I think that kind of follows for what we can expect from from this article, at least from what Mr. Jacoby expects. 
or wants us to believe. So here we go. Is English grammar racist? Uh, and feel free to stop me at any points if either of you uh, would like to. Oh, oh, I, I plan to, Alex. I plan to. Okay, okay. Excellent. <laughs> I, I am thrilled. Thrilled. To, never been more thrilled to be interrupted in my entire life. Uh, so here we go. Eager to do her part to demonstrate, quote, solidarity with Black Lives Matter, the chair of the English department at Rutgers University, Rebecca Walkowitz, recently sent a 3,400-word email on the subject to staff, students, and faculty members. Her message went into considerable detail to describe the, quote, ongoing and future initiatives, end quote, that are planned to, quote, create and promote an anti-racist environment to eradicate, quote, the violence and systemic inequalities facing black, indigenous, and people of color members of our community, and to, quote, cultivate critical conversations on state power, racism, violence, white supremacy, protest and resistance, and justice, end quote. Most of these initiatives, uh, or sorry, scare quotes, most of these, quote, initiatives have little or nothing to do with English. Much of the email is filled with rhetoric about, quote, equitable and diverse hiring and, quote, supporting black owned businesses and, quote, engaging students in conversations about race. All of it standard race consciousness boilerplate that could just as easily be copy and pasted into a similar email from the heads of the anthropology, molecular biology, or psychology departments. So, I, God forbid, multiple departments should do similar things, should work together. Yes. Heaven forbid there be consensus about about social justice, right? I, but the yeah. problem, my, my one of my problems with this logic is that it's is is that is that really a if it could be copy and pasted, is that really a criticism? I mean, it suggests that there is some consensus on on some of these ideas, right? That or that that others have are, have said these things, so that it is not that contentious of a view to have equitable and diverse hiring practices or support black owned businesses. That those seem like positive things, and but it's clear like there's a maybe a tongue in cheek thing here going, or it's like you know wink wink to the read to our conservative readers who know. I, I think that's I, that I hadn't noticed that on the first pass, but I think that's a really important thing to bring up that it that it's framed as boilerplate is is a really specific that's a criticism, kind of, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, well, I, well, I think I, I actually I've seen something kind of similar in other conservative online spheres on the Internet. So, like, I'm thinking back to uh, an, an episode that we did with our with one of our friend and colleagues, Daniel Dixon LaPrade, where he was talking about how uh, there was a Wikipedia page that he was a that he was an uh, editor on where he basically got it voted away out of existence. And it was for a Michael Crichton speech that was decrying what he called consensus science. The idea behind it, and of course, Michael Crichton, for those who don't know, is a notorious uh, climate change denialist. To his to his grave, he defended author that. of Jurassic Park. Also, though. the author of some some really really great books. The ironies, huh? <laughs> yeah, I know. You, 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 you hate to love him. Uh, so he, you know, he was using consensus as a pejorative. Like it is. Mm. It, like the idea was. These are all just people who are going with the grain. These are not people who are challenging the sort of groupthink of academic institutions, which is a is a major rhetorical strategy, I think, on conservative online spaces where there's just this sort of contrarianism that runs so wild that you can't even imagine. They can't envision the fact that like. Equitable, diverse hiring, supporting black-owned businesses, engaging students in conversations about race is a 
you know, that is a change from the way that things always have been, right? Like that is a challenge to to a, a hegemon, right? It, yeah, yeah. And it also works from a, a tacit assumed premise that liberal intellectuals or academics are bad, that they're trying to do yes. something bad here that they or they're out of touch or whatever. And that, that, so that's the wink and nod that I see here that because I see that same argument about liberal academics trying to ruin students be and and convert them into you know social justice warriors or whatever and that to me feels like there's an undercurrent here it's a wink and a nod to the readers who read this who are already buying into that they are this is you know this language they hear it and they know exactly what what's meant here and he doesn't have to say it so it's sort of an infamine that's functioning sort of right underneath the what seems to be the critique yeah yeah Continuing on here, uh, against the boilerplate, but Walkowitz has found some means to incorporate, quote, anti-racism specifically into how Rutgers teaches English writing and grammar. Several seem to involve downplaying the importance of proper English writing and grammar. For example, one of the ways the Rutgers English Department is planning to improve its writing program is, in the memo's words, by, quote, incorporating critical grammar into our pedagogy. And what exactly is critical grammar? Walkowitz explains. This approach, uh, this is the same as what Calvin said before, this approach challenges the familiar dogma that writing instruction should limit emphasis on grammar uh, slash sentence level issues so as not to put students from multilingual, non-standard academic English backgrounds at a disadvantage, end quote. Got that? There's more. Wait, I have to stop. I have to stop you there because yes. that question, he's folding in that he's misreading the quote yes. by, by saying, got that? There's more because... Like and, and this is the thing that's been really bothering me about how people are responding to this. They're not engaging with like the they say, I say move that Rutgers is actually undertaking here, which is that traditionally in, in English departments or in composition departments, we've de-emphasized grammar in a way that we're trying to focus on like high, quote unquote higher order issues in writing. But now we're going to focus more on it, but to emphasize like, that grammatical differences are not matters of quality, but they're situational or they're related to social groups or levels of privilege, like even. But like these responses are not acknowledging that it seems that what they were already doing was kind of what these respondents want them to do now. But they seem to be taking that as tacitly a thing that they also don't like. So they seem very confused about well, the history of comp composition. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know if, if many would know what's been happening in composition classrooms and colleges because, quite frankly, when I think about the, the history of composition, at least from the start of the process movement in the 60s, like the Dartmouth Conference, they're pretty clear they're moved already moved away from, or they want to move away, and they're moving away. It's just a different kind of moving away than we, we think of moving away today. Here, we're inserting politics, right? We're th saying right. language is it's situated in groups of people with unequal access to power and, and other privileges and opportunities. And back then, they were, they were they, that was the exigency, right? Like the exigency was, we have the Vietnam War. We have all these civil rights things. How do we uh, make democratize our class and we focus on process more? That wasn't the, the only argument for it. It was also there was better pedagogy. But... So that doesn't sound like an emphasis on grammar at all. And they're thinking like somehow we're moving. I I think probably this would doesn't sound very like far out and, and left field or whatever to most writing teachers. 
that is college writing teachers, it might not be how they would describe their grammar instruction, right? Critical, critical grammar instruction or, or what have you. But I think they would say their practices tend to already do this, which tells me that the people who would be criticizing this maybe haven't been in a writing, uh, college writing classroom in a long, long time, if ever, right? So... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We don't want to be ageist, but right, right. like, look, look up Jeff Jacoby. How old is Jeff Jacoby? No, oh, really. I mean, it could yeah, be. Yeah. Or what? Could or be what college did he go to? <laughs> Honestly, yeah, that, that might be that might be a good indicator too. What kind of what kind of grammar? Well, we we might find out what his uh, grammar instruction uh, was similar to in just a, just a moment. He here. probably just wrote wrote a red strunk and white, and then uh, yeah, you know, right. and, and, and tested out of a uh, of, of first year writing. Never went, never that's took a writing right. class. <laughs> that's right. He went to a, a school that still practiced the tradition of bell lets, uh, yes, and he had sure. to he had to, he had to copy by hand uh, the. Uh, uh, the great works of uh, Shakespeare and also all things just just copying it down because if you if you replicate their their grammatical structures you will then You'll, write you will internalize uh, those yeah. structures absolutely yeah. boy Whew. yeah that's a whole other can of worms as far as the history of writing instruction goes so there's more the new grammar curriculum quote encourages students to develop a critical awareness of the variety of choices available to them with regard to micro level issues in order to empower them and equip them to push back uh, against biases on written accents again that's a quote from the Rutgers letter here's Jeff Jacoby it takes years of graduate school and an advanced degree to be able to reduce English prose into something so impenetrable and opaque. But Walkowitz's memo appears to be assuring students, or at least students from, quote, non-standard backgrounds, that the failure to master English grammar will not be held against them, since it is more important for the Rutgers writing program to help students, quote, push against the traditional bias that favors proficiency in the rules and forms of English writing. All this may advance the process of what Walkowitz calls, quote, decolonizing the writing center, which, again, I don't think he knows what a writing center is. I think he just assumes that the writing center is what we call, like, the, the writing program. The, yeah, the, the center of the writing. The center <laughs> where we do all the writing. That's the, because uh, that, that I, I believe, was a whole different bullet it's point. It's a different, yeah, it was right. a different yeah. thing. Yeah, altogether. But it is not likely to ensure that Rutgers students who major in English acquire a reputation for clarity and elegance of writing. That is not clear logic to me. I don't know how the previous ideas about focusing on critical grammar will lead to a lack of clarity and elegance in writing. In fact, if anything, I think it may lead to more of that or different kinds of clarity and different kinds of elegance altogether. But it certainly isn't uh, mutually exclusive in a sense like you know there, there's no chronological or, or logical link here to that um, only in his mind maybe well and i think he thinks that he is a clear and elegant writer i would say he's a clear writer because <laughs> I, his ideas are not particularly complicated but i wouldn't call it elegant where's the elegance none of this is elegant he's just quoting stuff and yeah giving bad interpretations of it <laughs> well he did say got that in a question mark. That was a pretty nice short pitch. That was elegant. That was in an elegant next, move. That was that an rhetorical elegant, question. Fairly yeah. elegant to me. <laughs> That's the trope that we call the rhetorical question. That's right. <laughs> yeah. A well, well known, well known, uh, a gold standard rhetorical gold, tactic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This man clearly knows his rhetoric. I, I think we're outgunned here. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's he's going to draw on uh, perhaps one of the biggest guns of uh, English prose here. So he's going on here. <clears throat> 
In My Early Life, Winston Churchill's memoir of his first 30 years, the future prime minister recalls with deep appreciation his grade school teacher, Mr. Somerville, who taught his (laughs) charges to write English, quote, as no one else has ever taught it. Churchill recalled his teacher's method. Okay, I'm not going to do my Winston Churchill impression. Mr. Somerville. Mr. Somerville had a system. Of, <laughs> Mr. Somerville had a system of his own. He took a fairly long sentence and broke it up into its components by means of black, red, blue, and green inks. Subject, Ooh. verb, object, relative clauses, conditional clauses, conjunctive and disjunctive clauses. This sounds like a Dr. Seuss rhyme. <laughs> Each had its color and its bracket. It was a kind of drill. We did it almost daily. I learned it thoroughly. Thus, I got into my bones the essential structure of the ordinary British sentence, which is a noble thing. And when in after years my schoolfellows, who had won prizes and distinction for writing such beautiful Latin poetry and pithy Greek epigrams, had come down again to common English to earn their living or make their way, I did not feel myself at any disadvantage. Naturally, I am biased in favor of boys learning English. I would make them all learn English, and then I would let the clever ones learn Latin as an honor and Greek as a treat. <laughs> the, only, the only thing I would whip them for would be not knowing English, end quote. <laughs> so, wow. That, there's a lot Ooh. to unpack there. In not ju- I mean, in the use of Winston Churchill, who, quite frankly, was a known racist and white supremacist, said racist yes. and white supremacist things. And he was also arguably the last leader of Great Britain in the, in the British Empire era, who was clearly still infatuated with the idea of the British Empire being a thing. And so, I mean, I, I love, the first time I read it, I didn't catch, but I like your reading of it, Alex, the, the British sentence, what, which is a noble thing. Which is a noble thing, yes. <laughs> The essential structure of the ordinary British sentence. Which is a noble thing. It's a noble thing. It may be a noble thing, but so are many other languages and and Englishes. So it that's right. I I think it's I mean it it really shows I mean it really shows here the quote itself, the defense of a certain particular English from a guy who literally was the symbol of the dying British Empire, says to me volumes about you know, what this argument is really about. It's about white supremacy. Yes. And I'm also just like, Jeff, Jeff, what does this quote have to do with university <laughs> writing? Like you're talking about Winston Churchill's grade school grammar teacher doing sentence diagrams on the board. Like what does that have to do with the genres that university students have to write in? I mean, I think clearly he wants all of, all of the women, women to get out of college because he's only talking yes. about boys here, just boys being That's educated. Right. Boys. And of course, all the all the, the 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 good ones they get to they get as a treat get to learn Latin and Greek. So I mean, clearly he's, he's wanting. But to they're not going to know how to write a cover letter. They're not going to know how to write. <laughs> well, like, they can do that. In, they can do that in Latin. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if the jobs they're applying to are worth a damn, uh, they will accept so, Latin. It's a wonderful thing. It really is. It's a be- it's a beautiful quote. <laughs> It really, it really is. If you if you want to write in the Patriot Post, you better submit your cover letter yeah. in, in Latin and in Greek Latin. just to be safe. And it should be color coded yeah. in red, red, orange, yes, oh, black, that. blue. Oh, green. that's amazing! That's amazing. Oh, that does yeah. seem very Churchilly. Like, um, not that I've ever known Churchill knew much much of. I mean, I've only seen biopics and such of them. But wow, 
What a way to kill something that's lovely, right? Uh, like dissect it and then taxonomize it, color code it. <laughs> make it color code it every day. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not, and it's not even, it's not even really clear from that quote, like what the actual, what are you learning other than just right. the order? Uh, like, is that, are you just learning syntax? Like, that's not all that grammar is, you know? Right. Like, no. um, it's also, so, also knowing it, also knowing it doesn't uh, help any help students use it. use it exactly. So, I yes. mean, the, the research on that, I remember some research back at Lester Fagley back in maybe it was the 70s or the late 80s early 80s that did some work on this on teaching grammar and teaching the cumulative sentence so they they did both and found out that teaching grammar didn't help students uh, first year writing students in college didn't help them at all at the end of a semester of, of, of instruction in their final essays that were uh, evaluated, but that teaching the cumulative sentence actually did statistically help in some uh, moderate way in terms of the overall score of those of those tests. Although I kind of, uh, I like that research because I love, I still love the cumulative sentence. And apparently Churchill doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <quote. laughs> he likes long no, sentences, breathy yes. sentences, but not, not the cumulative. Yeah. Not the cumulative. That's right. And I'm, and I mean, I would like to say here, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of grammar. Like I enjoy breaking sentences down and identifying different parts of speech and different, yeah. you know, different syntactic structures. Like, I think that's very interesting, especially analytically, like thinking about how, you know, in different wow. discourses, different structures are employed for different effects. But that's not all writing is. Right. It's much more important to right. like, practice and, and use writing to learn and, and communicate about your situation, right? And what does any of this, again, have to do with what university students need to learn to be able to write? Right. right. So getting back to what Asal pointed us to was the, uh, the, the note about uh, it being a noble thing. And I think that's really where the tell is, right? Like that's the, uh, it's, it's I, you know, the difference between Winston Churchill's appreciation of grammar and Calvin Pollock's appreciation of grammar per, and probably Alex Helberg's and Asalbi Inouye's is that we don't, we don't attribute nobility necessarily to a single grammatical structure over others, right? Like that's no. a, But, I, but that I, would is, argue, I would argue that he doesn't, he's not really either. He's just attributing it here in this, in this words, right? That to say it's noble is what he's really saying is, the white Anglo-Saxon is noble and his language right. is yes. noble right. and his language is noble. So, so if we, yeah. So if we, if we translate that back up into this writer, what's his name? Jeff Jacoby. Jacoby's, his reference to clarity and elegance in, in any, that could be, that's just a surrogate for the noble English Anglo-Saxon language that, that Churchill is speaking of, especially since he's quoting him and using him as evidence. It is race by another name. It's the it's the new racism here. Yeah, there's going to be another big tell in this next paragraph <laughs> about that that we'll get to. I also just wanted to note though that uh, there's no nobility after the uh, that sentence. He starts a sentence with then a uh, conjunction. What is it? <laughs> I believe th two or three prepositions, or maybe maybe not. I don't know. It's the sentence begins <laughs> and when in after years. And which, when in after what? years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which I don't know if I after years compound is, noun or if that's i a, think it is a compound okay noun, all right i figured yeah, as much yeah i wonder if that's i wonder if that's also maybe a, a britishism it, it, it probably it probably yeah. it probably is see i'm yeah. i'm i'm being uh I'm no being no no but it, but, it, <laughs> no, but, it, but it shows it shows just how uh, transient these quote-unquote standards of proper english car they, i don't think I, I don't think any of us are saying that what he said here is unclear or not elegant we're just saying 
it's British English, man. And it's a British English from the mid-century. And it's not yeah. the English that people would write or, or speak today exactly. And if you use him as the standard, well, then everybody's going to fail at being Winston Churchill. You know? Yeah. Right. So that's right. <laughs> and that's not because Winston Churchill's great. It's just because you're not yes. Winston Churchill. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm we could be to fail. Yeah. In that regard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So Jacoby goes on. Today, of course, Rutgers and its champions of, quote, critical grammar would regard Churchill's emphasis on acquiring, quote, the essential structure of the ordinary British sentence as a primitive abomination. John F. Kennedy said of Churchill that he, quote, mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. There is little question that the power of Churchill's well-wrought English rhetoric helped save Western civilization in one of its darkest hours. And then in parentheses here, the power of that prose also earned Churchill the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1953. So what do we think about that paragraph? <laughs> thank God thank God, he saved the, uh, the Western civilization. I think it was doing just fine by itself, but... But, it, but yeah. that is a tell, right? I mean, what is oh, that? Yeah. What is and that? it was what? specifically it was specifically his grammar that saved Western civilization. <laughs> That's right. Like, well, yeah. Grammar can, can save lives, man. That's right. <laughs> Haven't well, you seen those you... T-shirts? Grammar <laughs> saves lives. <laughs> it's, it's the difference between well, and... eat your mom and hey kids, eat your mom, <laughs> or whatever the or whatever the T-shirt is. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. Or, yeah, yeah. Let, let's let's eat let's grandma eat... or let's yeah. eat comma grandma. grandma. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Eat shoots and leaves. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's oh, right. Gosh, oh well. my gosh. I, yeah, I also I also love that that JFK metaphor about Churchill mobilizing the English language and sending it into battle as uh, if that's like a thing that I mean that it's good? again it's it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a, right, yeah. it says it says a lot about the way that these guys think about language which like or, or is, that what we or what we're really talking about here is a race war. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so yeah. I mean, they're using the metaphor. Yeah. And and yeah, just as a, I, I mean, we kind of mentioned it a little bit. Any reference to Western civilization, you can pretty much immediately, not immediately write off, but I mean, pretty clearly say, oh, okay, that's a signal to an overt white supremacist argument because the I, the concept of Western civilization is uh, first and foremost not real. Um, it doesn't yeah. uh, refer in reality to the you know, the way that cultural interaction and uh, and and development work, like the, the history of ideas just does not bear that out at all. So it, it also it, in this context and the way it's used, the term Western so saving Western civilization, it yes. suggests that Western civilization as Churchill left it is worth saving, that it's not going to that it shouldn't change in some other way, maybe perhaps better progress, perhaps. So th this to me is tied very closely to that noble um, uh, language that, that was and the, the very, to me, very overt white supremacist sort of uh, thread through this through this discourse, this kind of argument of grammar being racist. What they really mean is any attack on quote unquote standard grammar, proper grammar is an attack on white supremacy in the world. Through Churchill, JFK, Western civilization, what I don't know how much grander you could get in your in your language, um, you know. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And all we're talking about is contextualizing the politics of grammar in, 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 the, in the classroom. And all of a sudden, Western civilization is about to be destroyed. I mean, if you if you watch enough Fox News or other kinds of news outlets, you start to notice sure. a tendency of like so many things end up being an attack on Western civilization. And right. Boy, it really, really makes you wonder about, you know, what... Uh... <laughs> It makes you really realize what they're really talking about is it's, it's an attack on whiteness. 
Yes. And they're the bastion of whiteness. I mean, yeah. and so, so of course, are they wrong? No, they're not wrong at all. It, it's just that we don't need to have white supremacy anymore. That is, we shouldn't have it. We should never have had yes. it. But yes. they're holding on to that. And this is that. This is one way in which you, which one might hold on to it without calling themselves white supremacist or racist. They're just saying, I just want good grammar. I just want my. I just want students to learn how to be clear and elegant in their expression. I, you know, I. It's baffling to me. So I'll, 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 I'll go on here because there's, there's lots, lots more fun stuff to get through here. So, but English department chairmen in 2020 have more important, again, chairmen chair, chair yeah. uh, in 2020 <laughs> yeah. have more important, it's not a, I don't think that was unintentional, have more I, important yeah. goals than mere excellence uh, in English. The achievement of an, quote, anti-racist classroom takes precedence over everything else, including elevating the skills and knowledge of students who struggle with standard English. Quote, in short, observes David Bernstein, a university professor and head of the Liberty and Law Center at George Mason University, quote, the Rutgers English Department wants to make sure that students who come to Rutgers with a poor grasp of standard written English not only remain in that state, but come to believe that learning standard English is a concession to racism. I remember when keeping, quote, people of color ignorant was considered part of white supremacy. I, I love that when, to, in order to make arguments about grammar or language instruction, you use experts who are not in that field at all, that, yep, who, who, have right. some, who have some damn opinion about it. And I'm not saying that David Bernstein, university professor and head of the Liberty and Law Center at George Mason University, isn't smart or doesn't have important things to say, but clearly he is not a language scholar. I mean, yes. that is not what he does. So why would you be quoting him about what he thinks about... Ask Daffy Duck. I mean, you're going mean, to... Well, why did we quote, why did we quote Winston Churchill? Well, yeah. I mean, he's not a great thinker about language. The reason either. why they're not quoting writing scholars is because no writing scholar would say that. That's right. That's right, yes. Oh, and also they're they're considered part of the out group that practices this groupthink, this consensus. You know, they're yeah. they're the ones who are really blinded by their uh, their ideologies, um, which of course these guys have none of. Uh, no, so, no. no, they're immune to yeah, that. That's right. That's right. Um, so he goes on. All this reminds me of the national uproar that was triggered in the 1990s when school boards in Oakland and Los Angeles decided that Black English should be recognized as a distinct language, quote, ebonics, and used in class classrooms, much as students from Spanish-speaking homes were to be taught in Spanish. Quote, debate rages over whether Ebonics is a language or just slang, end quote, reported Kate Zernicke, who is then the Boston Globe's education reporter. Just casual shout out to the Boston Globe. Quote, but either way, Ebonics isn't simply about words. It's a philosophy, one where teachers preach about raising motivation, reducing anxiety, removing barriers, and affirming self-concept. More than anything, this is the highest crest of the self-esteem movement, end quote. There was just one problem, which the Globe documented. Quote, there is absolutely no hard evidence it works. In the Los Angeles school system, test scores at schools with Ebonics programs were plunging. But to the true believers, it was more important to validate the legitimacy of the ill-developed language skills the students brought with them to the classroom than to help those students achieve proficiency in standard English diction, grammar, and pronunciation before their time in classrooms came to an end. I love how they validate this test with another white supremacist and racist test and say, you see, they didn't do what they're supposed to do. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's, it's funny how they can't, it's difficult for this writer to see this, that contradiction, that, that that's not proof of anything here. 
That's just yeah. proof. I mean, or that they, maybe they haven't really understood how those tests and test scores are racist. I mean, it's it's very clear. Even SAT, even the, the uh, what's his name, Jinx, Jensen, uh, who did all that valid- validation work for ETS uh, and uh, SATs, shows very clearly that, that uh, the SAT was racist. There, was, there were gaps, uh, racial gaps. But the funny thing I also find is there's no mention in this quote or with about from Kate Zernecki about debates rage over whether Ebonics is a language or just slang. You need to finish that. You need to say, you need to explain that Ebonics is not slang. So for me, one of the better arguments currently about this is, I don't know if you've read April Baker Bell's new book, just came out a month or two, a couple months ago, uh, Linguistic Justice. Yeah, she, I heard about she, that one. She discusses this in terms of black English from a linguistics point of view. I mean, she's using linguistics research to talk about this. And she, her field is in education. That is, she was a high school teacher and then college professor, et cetera. But it's very clear, black English, Ebonics, it does not qualify as slang. It is its own language with its own grammars. And so, so, it's, so to call it slang de, devalues it, says it's something less. It's just some hybrid or some, you know, redheaded stepchild of actual English when in reality, no, it's its own language. And it has a very, very clear set of influences from Africa. And that's been documented over and over the last 40 years by folks like Geneva Smitherman and, and such. So this is just like, ill-informed and not complete <laughs> reporting on this, on this guy's part. It's not hard to find that research. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, and that's why we brought in experts on writing assessments and uh, <laughs> and this uh, to our podcast, because that's yeah. that's how you should be doing journalism, <laughs> is finding experts in the field you're writing about. So, I also just want to point out that I, like there's an amazing lack of self-awareness that he's he's recycling tropes and debates from the 90s and saying what's happening now is exactly like what was happening in the 90s. And it's like, he doesn't stop and think, wait, maybe I just haven't kept up <laughs> with research or like the ways that people actually talk about these things now. Like, no, it's it's clearly exactly what I remember from 30 years ago. <laughs> right. Yes. Good point. Maybe, yeah. His reaction is evidence that, uh, at least in a certain sphere of the political spectrum, this really, yeah, the, the knowledge on this has not really moved forward all that much. Yeah. Uh, so continuing on here. As many commentators pointed out at the time, Black English, Ebonics, is not a language, but a dialect. Quote, it is a dialect that we love, one that warms us, comforts us, and gives us community, wrote the black poet Patricia Smith, who was a Boston Globe columnist. Again, just shouting out that Boston Globe whenever you can. (laughs) Quote, and I wish I could say that we couldn't care less about how it sounds to the rest of the world, end quote. And then it goes on here with, I think, an extended quote from Patricia Smith. But those of us who are bi-dialectical learned from people who did not speak the way we did. We listened to teachers, many of whom themselves had dialects, and our brains worked and we grasped concepts and ideas and theories. As black kids, we were introduced to a world where we had to enter in order to survive, and then we were offered the tools to get there. What they're saying in Oakland is that those kids are too dumb to learn the way we did, and that's insulting. Yeah, that's just not true. I mean, I don't care how you slice this. I mean, it's it, again, I see the rhetorical strategy here. Use a black author, a black poet who's accomplished in standard English and quote her saying what you want her to say, which is this. And it matches the conservative ideological standpoint of the writer, Jacoby. But 
the problem with this is that it's like looking through your your window and seeing it rain outside and then saying, hey, the world is raining. No, just your fucking house is being rained on, man. You don't know what the hell's going on over in another place. Like, so, so just because that was her experience as a black child growing up, having grown up using a, a, a black uh, English and then learning a standardized um, white English and then using that standardized white English as a poet successfully doesn't mean that, that is the, that's the, the journey that everybody needs to take or should take. A and then saying, oh, well, it's because everyone's dumb. No, maybe it's because they were already smart to begin with. And they don't need to be made smarter by, by learning some new English. I think as you were mentioning before, this is an amazingly like unaware, uh, <laughs> like unaware of what's ha what's, how one might read this in an alternative way or a self-conscious or self-reflective way. Well, and, and frankly, like probably even more insulting to, you know, other black people by saying like this one black person believes this thing. Therefore, all black people believe, believe <laughs> right. this thing like that in itself is classic racism. <laughs> like, well, that's and a, it's also, a, again, it's a quote from the 90s. Yeah. Like this is <laughs> like, this is not like you're not even quoting a black person today. Like you're like, right. you know what I mean? Like, so it's just like, it's this amazing ventriloquism of this quote, like getting it to say what he wants to say. And also the content of the quote, I think is very, it comes from this place of privilege where you say like, I'm doing okay now. So everyone else should have to struggle to get to my level. And I think that's the, the fact that some, that someone like Jacoby is using this quote to make this argument is extremely offensive, like just on the level of not extending opportunity and and learn like learning opportunities to more to more people and more kinds of people. It's also a little bit disingenuous because I think Jacoby would say if we said you can't use one black poet as the voice of all black communities and all black people to say this is what they think, which is really I think the tacit argument here, right? Like oh well, see even this black author says says that that's there you're right there is insulting i know he would say no 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 i'm not i'm not doing that that's not that i'm just offering this and she's black but it's important that she's black and i'd say yeah, absolutely and you got to go all the way back to the 90s there ain't one black author right what about um what about ta coates why don't you ask him i mean what, what would they say and that's and that's because they're not living in the 90s as as, as calvin <laughs> is, keeps reminding us these quotes come from like 30 years ago that's right <laughs> Yeah. Well, we're we're about to take a trip even further back. And uh, and Calvin, what you said about uh, opportunities and uh, extending those to different kinds of people, I think is uh, you're you're really going to like what comes next. Great. <clears throat> Jacoby goes on. I didn't grow up in a community that spoke black English. No <laughs> shit. Uh, so, sorry, just had to. I might cut that out, but uh, <laughs> uh, instead, I was surrounded by grown-ups who spoke the heavily accented, non-standard English of Eastern European immigrants. Many were like my father, a refugee from Czechoslovakia who immigrated to America in 1948. The only English that he knew when he arrived were the words he had picked up on the boat coming over. But like millions of immigrants before him, and like scores of others he met settling in Cleveland, he made learning English a priority. Two nights a week, he would take the bus to a public school that offered English classes, and on a third night, he would attend another English class at the Jewish Community Center. To practice their confusing new language, my father and a number of fellow immigrants formed a New Americans Club, which organized Sunday outings during which everyone was expected to speak English. His grammar never became perfect, and he never lost his accent, but for the past 70 years, English has been my father's primary language. 
America in the 40s and 50s didn't make life easy for non-English speakers, a fact for which I am enduringly grateful. My father was forced to learn English. It was the prerequisite to American life. I don't know that he would have been as diligent about getting on that bus three nights a week if Cleveland's banks had provided Slovak-speaking tellers, or if the government forms could have been completed in Hungarian, or if there had been a, quote, press two for Yiddish option when he had to contact his phone company for, or a utility. My father was fluent in all three. Not learning English wasn't an option. My father had to acquire the common American tongue. His life has been better for it, and so, consequently, has mine. Just one last paragraph here. The Rutgers English Department trumpets its adoption of critical grammar as an expression of its commitment to anti-racist education. I'm sure it is sincere and well-intended. But will it enhance its students' lives, or will it do the opposite? No, it will enhance the students' lives. But uh, let me come. <laughs> I want to. I, 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 there's an interesting rhetorical move here that I think is also problematic, and that is his use of his own father, who is a very different kind of immigrant. Well, I should say, is an immigrant of a very particular sort, one yes. who can, who, one who can eventually be absorbed into the white mainstream. Meanwhile, what he, who he's talking about are not immigrants. They're black citizens of the United States or who were forced and enslaved here first and then became citizens. So it, it, they're not, these are apples and oranges. And more importantly, he makes up like this false binary. It's all of a sudden all or nothing. Like you either are going to learn English or you're not going to learn English. And that isn't the, the proposition on the table. Right. Like that, at least that's the way he's I, I see him framing his father's experience. Either he learned it and he became successful or he didn't. And he wasn't. There was no press two for Yiddish. Well, that's too bad. The world is less. The, that world was less for not having press two for Yiddish. Yes, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. I mean, a lot of what he's describing is like horrible conditions that, uh, you know, that, that his father went through. We should see those as bad conditions and that language was implicated in all of those conditions. And I think he kind of understands that here. I mean, I, th I see him having the kind of sympathy for his father, even if he doesn't, he's not saying he should have been able to do it. I think he does see a sympathy for his father that he doesn't see for those black students at Rutgers who say want to retain their black English or use it in their thinking and analyzing or analysis in their writing classes. So I understand the move, but it's problematic for me because it's not, and part of it is that lack of self-awareness that we've been noting all along in this article. But maybe that's not really the hallmark of the patriot, <laughs> self-awareness. Maybe the it's the Patriot Post. Yeah, the yeah. Patriot Post, right? That's I just, right, yeah. you know, in my head, I keep thinking about that movie, that Mel Gibson movie from back in the day, where the he, Patriot, yeah, the Patriot, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, I, right. that's what I'm thinking of, and we all know how how uh, how uh, socially just, um, uh, you know, um, he was is. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Or just, or are you talking about Mel Gibson? Just, just, just Mel, Mel Gibson, Gibson, either one. Just Mel Gibson. Yeah. <laughs> a, tr yeah. a true patriot, and he's a true patriot. Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, yeah. like you, of course, you have an Australian play a patriot of the United States. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, right? that's right. <laughs> that's well, right. and it does, and it does because it proves my point about like he can be absorbed. He's a he's an, an Australian immigrant in, in effect in that movie, so to speak. Like for, for us, all, for all intents and purposes, as an actor. And he can play an American, a, a patriot, because he's white and he's white passing. So, yeah, of course.
Well, and actually, wasn't that wasn't that movie set in Scotland too? So I mean, again, oh. it's like the, the well, no, you're thinking of Braveheart. Oh no, I'm so, oh I'm yeah. so I'm so but, sorry. But, yeah, yeah, but yeah, the but know, but right, it still right. apply, but the argument still applies, right? I mean, he's not. It does apply he, to Braveheart. Yeah, he's not a citizen of Scotland. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. he's a United States. So. Yeah, but he's yeah, yeah, but he's yeah. easily transferable. He wasn't a citizen of. Um, of Nazareth either, and he still made uh, the Passion of the Christ. Right? Right. Well, I don't. I don't even yeah. want to talk about that movie because I didn't. I didn't bother to see it. So I just. I read a couple of reviews and said, "Oh, I can't. I can't bring myself to to do to, to do that work yeah, today." Yeah, super anti-Semitic. Yeah, that's that. That's what I heard. So, so I said, "No <laughs> thanks." I said, "I've had it right here to the with that kind of stuff, so I'm going to pass on that." Yeah. Not even, not even top shelf Gibson. Um, <laughs> he he peaked in Road Warrior. He peaked in Road Warrior. In my opinion. that's right. Yes, <laughs> that is, that is the most correct opinion right there. Oh man! Uh, but I did want to point out, like whenever I whenever I look at a text like this, I like to think about the kind of materiality of the text in the sense of, like we were talking about before, the Patriot Post kind of banner, like what that image looks like what's on all sides of, of the text as you experience it. And if you keep scrolling from the bottom of the text after it says Jeff Jacoby is a columnist for the Boston Globe, you keep scrolling oh, down, geez. you quickly run into a, a giant a giant banner that says, our cause is noble, it is the cause of mankind. Oh. George Washington, and a giant picture of George Washington. So I think that kind of... Yeah, under, the, you mean the slave that, owner. That underscores everything right. we've been saying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. I, you know, it's funny. I didn't even scroll all the way down to that impossible giant footnotey, whatever that is. <laughs> what, whatever they do that a lot these days on these websites. I didn't bother to scroll down until when I finished reading it. But, yep, they're not obvious, are they, about what their intentions or their politics are here at all? Are they? Mm-hmm. It's really hard to. It's really hard to discern. I mean, George Washington. Yeah, was speak English. <laughs> Speak English like the founding fathers seems to kind of be the... <laughs> I'm pretty sure that if we all listened to what George Washington sounded like, we wouldn't know what he was saying <laughs> half the time. We'd have no clue. <laughs> we'd, have, we'd have no idea what he was saying. <laughs> it would probably mostly be about accent and syntax, but... Ooh, all right. Well, so we got we got through that one. We we made it successfully through, and I think we offered some pretty yeah. good counter arguments and and reasoning to to a lot of the the faulty ones uh, in there. For the sake of time, I, I I think we we have just one other artifact that we want to talk through with you, uh, uh, Sal, and it, it it actually involves you in kind of a strange way. So we've got a clip here from uh, the Ingram Angle, which is a Fox News television program. I'm going to see if I can share my screen here and hopefully that will also pipe the audio in for the recording as well hang on one second. do we know when this clip aired yes uh this I clip believe aired july 24th right yes, yes. july 24th that was my birthday oh so, well, happy this late was birthday. my <laughs> yeah so this was my birthday gift to you yes, yes. Was, uh, awesome you know you got on you got on tv Thanks. you got on tv that's what everyone that's what everyone, everyone wants, wants for their birthday. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, hang on one second here. Let me see if I can get this working. Instead of separate but equal, there is separate and forgotten. I will confront another form of bias. The soft bigotry of low expectations. No child in America should be segregated by low expectations, imprisoned by illiteracy, Abandoned to frustration and the darkness of self-doubt. 
Now, unfortunately, we are seeing that so-called soft bigotry at Rutgers University. The New Jersey College recently announced it will now de-emphasize the use of traditional grammar in its attempt to stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. The university claims that this will empower students and equip them to push against biases based on written accents. Is that so? Joining me now is Carol Swain, author and former professor at Princeton and Vanderbilt Universities. Carol, I am speechless. Takes a lot to get me to be speechless, but they're basically telling students of color that I guess they cannot grasp the language or that the language itself is somehow racist. Laura, it's even worse than that because it's Black Lives Matter and black people who claim to be activists that are really pushing for lowered standards for black students. And if you think about critical race theory, the assumption is that if you're white, you know, you're privileged and that racism is permanent, that whites have to divest themselves of whiteness. But behind all of that is white um, superiority that black people are pushing. And so what they are saying is that Black people can't learn the same way as other groups, so they have to have this special treatment. And when I went to college, I started in the 70s, I was in graduate school in the 1980s, we were given an equal opportunity. We were admitted to colleges and universities, and we had to do the work. And, you know, like, that, you had to qualify, you got an opportunity to be there, but once you were there, you had to meet the same standards as everyone else. You know, it was either sink or drown or whatever the expression Swim. is. But you had to do the work. And so, to me, it's so demeaning that these black young people today who are more privileged, that have not really have to go, had to go through any real systemic racism, they are complaining the loudest, and they are getting ch cheated out of a quality education. Well, unless you think this is uh, some line of thinking, uh, Dr. Swain, that it's confined to one college, well, this is what an ASU professor said just last year. Even if we are a person of color, we are still a part of that machine, that white supremacist machine. And we likely got there because we were able to mimic enough of those languaging practices to be able to proceed, to succeed. It doesn't make it right. Languaging practices, okay. Carol. I, can tell you, I can tell you that uh, starting with the election of President Obama, we saw the, the racism on campus increase, but the racism was taking a new form. And I would say that when they talk about anti-racism, that what they're really doing is promoting racism. They're promoting racism against white students, students that they deem as privileged because they came from two-parent families. Mm -hmm. But they are also, um, the, the racism that comes from lowered standards, those black young people that they are not requiring to learn standard English are not going to be prepared to function the way they should in our society. No wonder they're angry. Mm -hmm. No wonder they're trying to burn down everything. Dr. Uh, Swain, it's always wonderful to see you. Come back soon, please. Always, <clears throat> always wonderful. Uh, yeah, so, they, so apparently Laura Ingram got her Patricia Smith, her black specialist to be the voice of the conservative line because they right. essentially said the same thing. 
right? So there's not there's no new argument here. There's just a different voice, and it's a black conservative voice, and it's also a black conservative who is not a language specialist. She's a political scientist, uh, yes. and so that so that so I'm not sure what to make of a political scientist telling me about my job. Um, <laughs> although she she avoids that. Oh, I was just going to say she didn't call you out directly, like no. in response to right. the in response Laura to the Ingram clip. Did. Laura Ingram sort of apparently. Just could not fathom what languaging, languaging uh, was could, yeah. could mean. Yeah, exactly. Which is yeah. very funny. <laughs> although, although she seemed to, although she seemed to figure out the gist of things. I mean, she didn't. Yeah. She just thought it. I think it's it's funny like that that term or that word used that way in that unconventional way for her. I mean, I guess that was maybe some sort of um, criticism. That little sh- smirk or that like I don't know. Um, but yeah. But it. But she. They used it because they understood what I was saying. <laughs> so I mean, so still got the rhetorically, we still got our points across. So I don't, so I don't see what the problem is. True. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's probably important to mention that Carol Swain there is is directly named as a representative of Blacks for Trump. Yeah, I think is, oh, is, is written man. there. Nice. So nice. it's not even that she's like just some political scientist who has opinions about another discipline. Like this is like someone with a clear political point of view that is anti-Black Lives Matter, anti-Black life in general, but particularly like against new social justice movements. Yeah, I love the the logic that she used. It's so transparent around seeing what critical race race theory does, which I don't think she really understands. And then saying, oh, well, what it means is reverse racism. Right. The anti-racist work is weird. I'm like, well, one, you don't understand. How does a political scientist not understand how power works? How does a political scientist not understand how, how these structural forces work? It's just simply un- impossible to do that when you're... So anyway, it it's it's a fascinating argument and clip, but I'm sure because it pushes all those same tropes and all those same sort of commonplace arguments that Fox News and the conservative blog sphere and all those places, they all re- rehash that... It all seems to go down pretty easily. I mean, even using even using former President Bush as a <laughs> as a speaker yes. for holy shit, like that is amazing. Oh, wow. I but, love uh, that, and I I love that how this he, the clip reminded me of how, what I thought was amusing about his many of his speeches when he would do this kind of stuff, and it was in order for him to make this rhetorical impact, he would slow down his speech and every word lots of space between each word as if he was saying something we all didn't know yet. Like he was yeah. just, he was, he yeah. had just discovered this new idea. <laughs> and we were I'm like, it doesn't make it right. You say the sentence slower. It doesn't make it any more right or wrong. It's just slower. <laughs> so, but that's yeah, but it's beautiful. It's eloquent. It's, <laughs> and, and if there's, if there's any example of a white person who got away with, not adhering to standard language norms. It's him. George right. w. Bush. <laughs> yeah. So like, wow. like he should be an example of why we should extend a principle of charity to like all of the you know the diverse ways that people speak. Exactly. I think uh, the Bushisms are were amusing and they were fun yes. for laughs and with a with a, a shot of vodka and and a, a couple of the good only friends. Good part you of could have a great time with those things. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No. It was. You're right. You're absolutely right. He's um, definitely the poster child for for that, and they're using him as a poster child for something else, the opposite position, which is 
because of his what what did he call that um uh, the soft, soft stand- bigotry the of soft. low expectations i love yeah. it. i, 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 I want to shake that speechwriter's hand for coming up with that like <laughs> thanks for for getting him to say that the soft bigotry yeah, that's great. I want, I, although I kind of want to hear either James Earl Jones or better yet, who else? Who what's what, uh, uh, Barry White? Maybe yeah. <laughs> Barry okay. White could say it. Yeah, there yeah. we go. Yeah, that would yeah, be yeah. better. Yep. Yeah, be a good song. Oh god, absolutely. This is the the new Barry uh, White album. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, the soft, soft bigotry, bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah. 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 For some reason, he's gone super right way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bizarre. yeah that's right. I'm going to start my next book that way. That's the line. Soft. Ah, it's going to be yeah. in scare quotes. There's going to be lots of scare quotes. <laughs> I'm going to attribute it to George uh, Bush. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, and I think that 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 actually would be a great a great starting line. I think because it's so this this is a line of argument that I've seen more than just on that Fox News clip. That's this has come up in other articles yeah. and other other places. That first of all, like a complete misunderstanding of the Rutgers announcement that you, they're taking this to say black students are too dumb to understand standard English. Like no, that, but that, right. And, and I think yeah. that gives away their biases. They actually think yes. that. Yes. So yes. Right. not yes. the, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's actually that if anything, it says teaching critical grammar or, or what, what have you is actually attributing more to students saying you actually have a lot to offer this classroom and a lot of intellectual skills and languaging skills that you will, that you can provide us. They help us all learn something about language and how to use it and not the opposite of you're too dumb. And that's mostly because they're equating a standard English to a standard, to rigor, to what is, what is clear, what is proper, et cetera, et cetera. And to success when actually learning a language, in this case, an English language, a particular version of English does not equate to success in business world, to become president. Obviously, George Bush is a clear example of that, as is Donald Trump. (laughs) Donald Trump is an even clearer example of that. Not standard English. But the research shows that there's there's an old famous um, education from education and sociology, Bowles and Gintis. It's called uh, Capitalism and Education or something like that. First published in like the late 70s. They did like 20 years, 30 years of research on looking at standardized scores, cognitive scores of language, that was one of the dimensions from college students and how much money they made after college and what jobs they got. And they found that those cognitive scores didn't equate at all to how much money somebody made after college. In fact, what, what, what correlated better, more strongly, was where you came from how much money your parents had, what neighborhood you grew up in. Those things mattered so much more to what jobs you got and how much money you made. And it makes perfect sense given the, the, what we know about our racist structures in society and how they are connected to jobs and what schools you go to and who your connections are and how much money you have when you leave college in terms of debt or negative income and so forth. So those things, like to me, those are clear markers of privilege or, or racism and not language is how we communicate but it is not a good measure for being successful and they're equating that to that in these arguments oftentimes like somehow teaching students or not teaching students if we're going to accept that i don't accept it but if we are not teaching standard english means now we have a whole generation of students who aren't going to be successful well let's be honest when did they think that the standard english was being taught was it in the 80s was in the 90s well how did all of those black generations turn out not very well and so 
except for the few that they trot out on stage like Fox does, right? They trot them out and say, look, right. see, and they get their, their check and they go home. But I don't, but it's not, they, they don't represent the statistical majority of people. And we're not, and of course, we're not just talking about blacks, we're talking about Latinx, we're talking about indigenous, we're talking about certain Asian populations, not all Asian populations, of course, but certain Asian populations, etc. So it baffles me that they can, that you could ignore so much other data and so much other information in our society and fixate on this. But then it doesn't when I realize the main political bent, ideological bent here is to uphold white supremacist systems. So you want to do that, you call it reverse racism. Sorry, I just got off. I just, I'm going to step right off of that soapbox. My apologies. Ooh. Too heavy. No, no, don't <laughs> apologize. Don't. Stay up there. Yeah, Stay up there. Please. We love it. We love yeah. it. Yeah, no, this is, yeah. No, no, I think that's directly, directly to the point um, of, <laughs> of all of this. Like that kind of nails what what is sort of fundamentally wrong with, with all of these arguments that are sort of subtly gesturing towards white supremacy again, though they... They they probably wouldn't call it that. It's it's just that they're that that is kind of like baked into the kinds of arguments that they're making. That there is this assumption that there is a cultural standard that exists above all of these other standards. That is the proper, the one true English, right? I mean, um, yeah, and, I mean this goes back. Yeah, this goes back to Edie Hirsch's stuff on that cultural yeah. literacy and shit. And I mean, right. it, it it didn't work then. It doesn't work now. And his racism and white supremacy is clear today as as it was then. I mean, and this is just another version of it. Well, yeah, and I also think there's a really strong emphasis on holding these standards up and denying their historical nature. Yeah. And and not only their historical nature, but their present connection to economic and social power. Right. And so the extent to which like people who are able to master the standard, no problem, may come from certain kinds of backgrounds. That entire question, that entire area of inquiry is shut off. We're not allowed right. to go there because grammar and English should be like math. There's a teacher at the front of the room <laughs> color coding a sentence. Uh, red, blue, green. Yeah, red, <laughs> blue, an elegant British sentence. Yes, the Some noble, the noble language. Of <laughs> a noble British right. sentence, and we're all learning it. We're all Thank learning. God for that. Thank God for that, because otherwise Western civilization, as fragile as it is, will crumble and fall. <laughs> That's right. Super fragile. That's Super right. fragile. Yes. That's right. That's right. Oh, yeah. man. Whew. No, I think the coronavirus is going to destroy Western civilization. I think that's much more likely Only than, 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 Rutger, than Rutgers English, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think if, if it's going to be one or the other, like COVID or Rutgers English. I think you know, what's funny COVID is that in my, what's funny is, and, and I'm, this is no slight to the to good folks at Rutgers, but I didn't think of Rutgers as, as particularly like a, a place of the, of of super critical stuff going on, but that's probably just me not, uh, not knowing very much about Rutgers uh, or not seeing them around much. So I'm not meaning that as a slight. I think actually what they're doing there in this statement is a very, very good thing. And it, and, and I've seen, we've seen more of these statements that are actually full fledged. Like this is our commitment, you know, at ASU where our, our uh, college did it. Um, that is my college did it as well as three or four other colleges for maybe maybe five of the colleges and the athletics department and as did the library uh, here. And then other places also have done it to uh, offer commitments to Black Lives Matter uh, movements and linguistic justice and the four C's, um, brand new four C's statement on linguistic justice for black lives and such. That uh, also a very, very strong and very different kind of statement that lists demands of writing educators. And I think 
all these things, it's very clear that there's a, a, a strong agreement. I won't say consensus, but a strong agreement in the rhetoric and composition, teaching, writing, teaching community, that this is how you do language in the world we live in today or how you teach it. So, and this kind of stuff, it's just out of touch. It's clear. It's like, I want, I want to say I should, uh, it'd be like me telling them how to, how to run Fox News. Like, I don't, I think I could probably do a better job, but nevertheless, I'm not, I couldn't run it like they run it. Yeah. The, the, the best job you could do with it is to run it into the ground. Um, that yeah, is yeah. the, that is crash the, it into the hillside somewhere. There you go. There yeah. you go. Yep. That's right. For sure. <laughs> only yeah. in our dreams, only, only in our dreams. Oh, maybe someday. I was going to say panning out here a little bit. It's, I think it fascinating how arguments like this, this is pretty standard fare in terms of how it's being argued, I think, at least in my view, from Fox News to, to this, the Patriot, the Patriot Post. Yeah. What's interesting is it, it's clearly not good writing. It's not good arguing. So, and yet they're arguing for this sort of, <laughs> this sort of rigor and <laughs> elegance and clarity. But I don't, I think that it's just, it's just their version of it. You know, so that That's is right. from from our view, it's very uncritical. It's very unself-aware. It's very uninterested in and having a, a balanced debate among various voices and getting actual, perhaps maybe somebody that's that's still living in this this decade um to to say something on the issue or or or, or publish something recently on this the, this that's in this subject area. They don't bother to do any of that. Any professor will do, any person that uses language will do, which seems to suggest that, okay, if any person will do that uses English, then perhaps we should just let people speak their own English because any English will do. So if that's the case, then then you've made our argument for um, teaching uh, English critically and letting folks use the Englishes of their nurture. So I find it fascinating how they're arguing for th- things like stronger uh, standards and what they mean, of course, is white standards, but... But then they they make these clearly bad, not critical arguments, or incomplete at least. I I think that's one of the things that we've always, from the very first rejoinder we ever did, kind of noted about what what is consistent among a lot of the articles that we analyze is that they, I think Calvin was the one who even said it, they fail on their own terms. They they don't live (laughs) up to the standards. Yeah, yeah. They don't don't live up to the standards that they set for what is, for what is like (laughs) the good and, and, you know, especially when it comes to getting out of their lane and starting to talk about things like language and, and how that affects politics and and culture it's not their lane um clearly (laughs) no no not at all yeah the irony is stunning like i mean even just that example of george w bush like holding george w bush up as your scion of standard (laughs) language yes like yeah i think yeah absolutely like that is that's it's and and what how interestingly unself-aware that Yeah. yeah you know that it's that not even a passing mention of like he's been criticized for his use of language on numerous occasions right. by many people. Not even that, but let's use him because he says something convenient for us for our arguments here. Blah. I mean, at least they could have done was trot out Ronald Reagan. Yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, like but I don't even know. I, I, right. yeah, I don't even know if Ronald Reagan could have would have said something like that. I don't. I don't know. I mean, yeah. is to look back and see. Uh, although his his slogan was used by D- Donald Trump. Donald Trump plagiarized uh, Ronald Reagan's slope. 
Yes. Yep. That's such a white supremacist slogan, right? Make, uh, make America <laughs> oh, yeah. great. I mean, it's, it might as well have uh, Winston Churchill up there telling how noble the, uh, uh, the English language or, or how Western civilization is about to, to fall and, and we need to defend it because it's so great. It is, it is both incredibly strong and incredibly weak at the same time <laughs> yeah. somehow. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, I think, I think what we've really come to through this episode is, you know, if you want good argumentation, uh, you want good diction, uh, standards for, uh, speaking, uh, listen, listen to our podcast, uh, listen to, <laughs> listen to other, other, uh, rhetoric podcasts, listen, uh, listen to, and, and yeah. read a sow's work, read a sow be in a way's work. <laughs> no. That's right. Uh, <laughs> actually, actually on a serious note, I would say that if you want to hear good, elegant language, then all you've got to do is listen to yourself. And I don't mean that as being like to be self-absorbed. I mean, we are all elegant in our ways and we can find that elegance. Just, we just have to keep a, a measure of how do I, how do I move forward? Like, what do I do next? Do I just stay in the, in the way I do it now or do I move forward? What can I learn from, from Alex or Calvin? What do I learn from, what do I learn from Jeff Jacoby? I've learned quite a bit from Jeff Jacoby today. Uh, <laughs> and I don't mean that. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm just meaning like, like no, even, right, even Jeff right. Jacoby, even, even uh, uh, George W. Bush can teach me something about how slow should I say my sentences. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, yes. I'm teasing there. I'm teasing there. But, yeah. but, but of course, I, I, I do think that I am serious about like we all have elegance. You just have to be able to be smart enough and compassionate enough to see it. And if you can't see it, you're not there yet. So uh, that is, I'm talking about the listeners and the viewers who might be looking at someone speaking and thinking, oh, they're inarticulate or they're, they're not, they, they don't have good language. Then you just can't see it yet. And that's actually your, your problem, not theirs. And, unless, of course, they're trying to do something else with it and they're trying to make you see something. So then, then, it's, then it's both your faults. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's what that's that's I, what I think. That's my two cents. Yeah, I, I I love that, and and to be honest, I I think that that's kind of a beautiful note to uh, to end things on. If we went longer, and if we, I mean maybe maybe in a different episode, perhaps we would have wanted to talk to you about things like labor based grading contracts because th- these are fascinating things to to us, and I think they're important conversations to be having. Just as a way of citation and and plugging a fellow rhetoric and composition podcast, if you want to hear more about Asawi Inoue's work. Um, on, uh, on writing assessment and particularly labor-based grading contracts, you can take a look at Shane Wood's uh, podcast, Pedagogue. We'll we'll go ahead and put a put a link to that in our show notes as well, as well as as well as reading uh, reading Asabi Inoue's work. It's uh, it's it's really really inspiring and and honestly, as a as a writing teacher, it it feels like one of the more practical, accessible ways of really thinking about how to do anti-racist pedagogy. So so thank you, Asau, for all of your work and for coming on our show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you all for doing this really good work. I think public facing scholarship and work like this is so important for academics because because heaven forbid we just be stuck in our ivory towers, right? That I think Fox right. News and the Patriot uh, Post would think that we are doing. But in fact, no, that's not where we're clearly there's good academics like you all that are trying to do this work and offer it to the public. And I think that is absolutely essential to our as our jobs uh, as public intellectuals you know i don't even want to call myself an academic i mean I'm a, i want to think of myself as a public intellectual uh, yeah. i'd hope to cool. absolutely i mean if jeff jacoby is then you are yes <laughs> at <laughs> right. the very least uh, right thank you yeah thank you yes. yeah. <laughs> well, if jeff jacoby's the standard then i think i'm That's, all right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> then you are like Winston Churchill. No, I would never I, slander you with that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no, no problem. So before we take off, Asao, would you like to uh, plug anything, any recent work that you've done or anything that you would like to signal boost uh, on our show? No, I'm, I'm not. I think I'm okay. I mean, I do have something coming out. I mean, well, it won't be out for a few months, but but I don't want to. I'll, I'll wait on that. All right. It's a, All right. It's a new, it's a new book. So. Big big things in yeah. store. New book from yeah. Asao. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, actually, I will say this. It's part literacy narrative and part argument for white language supremacy. That is for how it how it exists in the world. I use my own uh, educational uh, journey in public schools to, to sort of demonstrate and then show that. So it's going to, it reads in part like a, like a literacy narrative memoir kind of thing and part like an argument in, in the kind of academic sense, but it's written for a, for a, a wider audience, not academics. Awesome. That's yeah. tremendous. Thank you. Well, from all of us here at Reverb, uh, we want to thank you for tuning in until next time. We'll talk to you later. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers at large are Sophie Wadzak and Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.